these just epic heli shots and this these guys in you know spandex and what looked like cross-country skis in their back just ripping up and down along these ridges in europe and i was just like it just all of a sudden i was like what is this i've never heard of it like it seems so silly but also so cool and um and so kind of like again in that coming back from that back injury i kind of went all in i was like you know i haven't even done this sport but this is gonna be my thing and <laughs> schemo is it's the sport it's the racing uh bastard stepchild of uh of backcountry ski touring leadville is at the end of the day who can hold sort of like tempo sweet spot forever at um super high altitudes i mean i live at eight thousand feet and leadville to me still feels like breathing through a straw Hi, I'm Dirk Friel, co-founder of Training Peaks, and you're listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'll be sitting down with expert endurance coaches and amazing athletes, each with special stories to tell. At its heart, Training Peaks is about helping you create the best journey possible towards your endurance goals. We hope these stories inspire you to get out there, train with purpose, and never be afraid to sign up for that next big challenge. Aspen ski legend John Gaston is my guest today on the Coachcast. John is arguably the country's best ski mountaineering or ski mill racer and competes on the world stage in the winter. He is the current U.S. National Ski Mountaineering Champion and has won the most prestigious U.S. events multiple times, including having won the Power of Four ten times. In the summers, he rips up the trails near his home in Aspen, where he placed second in the Leadville 100 mountain bike race, ahead of many of the world's top professional cyclists. I hope you enjoy our conversation, where John reveals his training philosophy surrounding being world-class in two different sports. John Gaston, thanks so much for joining me. You're up there in beautiful Aspen, Colorado. Um, yeah, thank you so much. You know, usually... I see you from behind and on the start line, you're a few rows ahead of me. And by the finish line, you're a few hours ahead of me, especially in like a race like the power of four. So this is the most I'm going to be able to interact with you ever. So this is like really exciting for me. I got all kinds of questions. We're going to dig into a lot of the meat of your training. Um, so yeah, thanks for joining me today. Yeah. Well, like I said, uh, thank you for, for having me. Um, been a big fan of training peaks for a long time and definitely seen you at the races for quite some years so thank you for having me on the show yeah well i wish i started racing uh look first question what are we going to call the sport the sport of ski mountaineering random <laughs> ski touring ski mo what what you know in, in you know what are we going to default to here you know my my personal favorite is the like italian version of ski elp which is uh just sounds a little bit cooler than schemo, but no, I mean, you know, that sport gets, it's, it's easy to, to knock on it because yeah, it's, it's true that the vast majority of races have few to no mountaineering elements in it. Um, but, um, I think, you know, you know, more, I mean, the races in Europe definitely have, have some of that and some of them can be quite intense. Um, but certainly in the U S a lot of them, um, kind of get knocked down for, for that nomenclature. But, um, you know, I think I, like the most appropriate like name would actually just be like ski touring racing, but that just yeah. doesn't really roll off the tongue too well. So uh, I think we got to stick well, with, with Schemo for now. 
for listeners that are maybe seeing, hearing about you for the first time, a lot of folks maybe have seen your name for the first time via, you know, getting second in Leadville uh, 100 mountain bike race recently. So big congrats on that. Um, we'll get into all that, but tell us more about, okay, what is ski touring, ski racing, just the fundamentals of it and how long have you been racing it? Yeah. I'm um, schemo is it's the, it's the sport. It's the racing, uh, bastard stepchild of, uh, of backcountry ski touring. So, um, it's, uh, you know, we, we skin or hike up mountains depending on, um, the section of the course. Um, and then we rip skins and, and ski back down as fast as we can. And we, we do it a, a whole bunch of times. And, um, some of the races, uh, start and end at the same place. Some of them are point to point. Um, there's a few different types, uh, ranging from very short, uh, sprint efforts of about three to four minutes up to the vertical race, which is about a half an hour full gas uphill only more of like a fitness test. And then kind of the, the crown jewel would be the individual race, similar to like an XCO mountain bike race, sort of that hour and a half type um, World Cup Olympic standard. Um, and then uh, teams races, which are generally longer. Sometimes they're stage races and they're usually always with a partner, usually two, sometimes three, if they're on glaciated terrain over in Europe. And um, it's a really fun sport. Um, I got into it pretty late in life. I grew up uh, alpine skiing primarily. And, um, you know, I was a very active kid, but I was not into endurance sports per se. I was definitely, um, loathe to climb up hills and took a chairlift whenever possible, whether on a bike or skis. Um, but then, uh, during college, my brother and I started, um, just climbing Highlands Bowl out here in Highlands, Aspen Highlands a lot more and, um, slowly but surely just doing laps after lap of of Highlands Bowl on, on the big free ride gear. Um, sort of started to scratch that itch a little bit and I realized I was pretty good at going uphill as well. And um, and then it kind of all came to a head uh, the winter after I graduated school, um, I broke my back. Um, and coming off of that, I kind of had to be a bit cautious that first year about like, you know, just, hucking off every cliff in sight or, um, or whatnot. Yeah. And, um, and I started skinning a bit just like on the resort, um, just cause I was sort of limited to like an hour a day of activity and very mellow non-impact stuff. And, uh, and, um, it sort of snowballed. It was kind of a combination of a few things like that was, was sort of the start of it. I was on some big heavy gear, but then that same winter, my brother, started ski racing with Max Tom, who you know quite well um, from some races. And at the time, I remember making so much fun of them. They first told me about this new sport they were trying out. I think their first race was Irwin Lodge, or at least my brother's. It's probably Max's like 50th. But um, he came back with, I think it was a pair of Dinafit TLT5 boots. I think I called them like Elf Mountain Fruit Boots. I mean, I just had no idea what they were. I thought they were so silly looking. Um, but then, you know, again, on the couch all winter, busted back like metal brace. I started kind of looking into this sport a bit more and uh, it just so happened that was the first year that Solomon released Killian's Quest. I don't know if you remember that oh, yeah, yeah. series. Yeah. And the very first episode of that um, started off with shots of uh, of him racing Pyramenta with these just epic heli shots. And this, these guys in you know spandex and what looked like cross country skis in their back just ripping up and down along these ridges in Europe. And I was just like, it just, all of a sudden I was like, what is this? I've never heard of it. Like seems so silly, but also so cool. And, um, 
And so kind of like, again, in that coming back from that back injury, I kind of went all in. I was like, you know, I haven't even done this sport, but this is going to be my thing. And, and the following winter, I think I uh, asked for like, you know, I think you couldn't even get the gear in the States really back then. And so I asked for like a, for my grandparents, actually, like a, like some package deal from Telemark Pyrenees, you get like boots bindings, skis wow. type thing. For, yeah. uh, and, um, and I just went off the deep end. Like I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was, I, I had very few technical skills. I could ski on hill really fast, but um, as, as you know, like, you know, when you're in rando gear, um, that margin for error is much smaller than it is on like a one ten underfoot, 190 yeah. free ride ski. And, uh, I was, I would just crash my way down the mountain, just, <laughs> just taking so much risk being such an idiot. But, uh, it took me quite a few years, frankly, to figure it out and to kind of, um, really turn into an endurance athlete first and not, not a free ride athlete pretending to dabble in endurance sports and uh and then another like five years to honestly start to believe in myself to the level of uh of like investing in the training frankly i mean you know it's one of those things that growing up and you see something like the tour de france or a, you know world cup or world champ level anything frankly and uh sort of like outside looking in it's like oh that's cool that's not for me that's never going to be me i wasn't born like that so um you know, you know, I can only do so much, but then at the end of the day, like you start chipping away at it. And it took me a while to realize, well, you know, maybe I could actually get somewhere if I do start ramping up and, and putting in the time and effort that everyone else, you know, at that level has and, and taking off a thousand hours a year and, and just give it a go. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, I, I did these sports out of somewhat, what I say, like recreationally fast level for quite some time, but it wasn't until I was quite old you know, basically till I turned 30, almost, or, you know, 29 and a half, uh, I finally first had what I would call like my first big breakout season from like a truly, I like for lack of a better word, elite level um, competition standpoint. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm an old guy, but I came to the game late and uh, still getting faster. So it's, it's all fun. <laughs> We've had an amazing 2022. Um, what I believe you won U.S. Ski Mountaineering Association Nationals in Vail. Um, you won power four as usual. How many times you won power four in Aspen? 10, 10 times. Grand Traverse, <laughs> did you win that this year? Won that with Cam. Yep. Yep. And then, um, second in Leadville, 100 mountain bikers. So how do you go from top ski mountaineering athlete to literally beating guys that are making very good salaries, you know? mountain bike racing, gravel racing. You were second to Keegan Swenson, who's won everything this year. Um, and, you know, to podium at Leadville is a major podium, um, you know, worldwide. So how, how do we reconcile that? You know, did you just flip one day and say, I want to target Leadville <laughs> or, you know, how did this come about? Uh... Yeah, I wouldn't say it's 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 not as simple as flipping flipping a switch one day to the next, but um, I've always done a lot of my winter training on on the bike. Um, you know, so I, I spend so in the summer leading up to the winter. Yeah, I spend I spend. I mean, I, I do absolutely zero training on the bike during the the six months of the winter season, um, other than the occasional spin here or there on the trainer. Um, but uh, I, I I've always done a fair bit of of cycling in general. Um, 
in the summer. And, uh, you know, I used to race mountain bikes back in the day in my amateur days. Um, sort of again, like recreationally fast, never, I mean, I did the town series races here and some local races in Colorado and would just get my teeth kicked in, um, <laughs> at, at the bigger events against fast guys. Um, and I kind of stepped back from that. Um, yeah, in, uh, 2015. Um, and then it wasn't until like 20, yeah, 2017, I started focusing on schema, like getting better results internationally. And, um, and then after that, I started throwing a little bit more racing in, in the summer, just as sort of short-term motivation. Like I, I was never, you know, so schema is kind of split. So I sort of say half the guys come from a, a running background, half them come from a cycling background. And that's not, that's not, you know, it's oversimplification for sure. But, um, but I definitely come from the cycling side of that equation. And so, you know, my training is taken much more heavily, uh, from, kind of a cycling bias than from a running bias, um, from terms of volume and periodization and polarization and stuff. And, um, and I do do a fair bit of, of running and hiking for schema, especially in the fall, but I've learned to do as little as necessary during the summer, frankly, because I'd rather be out ripping, ripping trails on my bike. Um, and so, you know, I've always, the last few years in particular, as I've been doing these very large annual volumes anyways, like I, I've always been quite fit in the summer, um, but sort of purposely not race fits because, uh, you know, I, it burns a lot of matches to stay in schema shape at that top level all winter long, especially those harder, shorter races. And I tried not to overcook myself in the summer. And so even this summer, I only did, you know, two races. I didn't do a whole calendar like the other guys. Um, uh, but anyways, back to the Leadville thing, you know, I, I, um, I signed on with the feed high performance team um, as just a supplementary sponsor to strafe um, back in the fall and talking to Brandon, who runs that team. Uh, I knew that um, like a lot of their athletes are on the Leadville grand or the grand prix like, lifetime series. Um, and Leadville in particular was, was kind of like their biggest race for the whole team. Like he, that was, they were really psyched in that race and really wanted me to do it. And um, I can always be convinced pretty easily. It's right over the pass from Aspen and it, it sort of always fits in pretty well with just logging big hours in the summer anyways. And so, you know, starting last fall, I definitely put it in the back of my head as like something to um, look towards once the season was over. I, I didn't, but that is to say, I mean, I didn't focus on it one second until, uh, until May. Um, I did a full winter calendar, which came with its own challenges health wise this year. And then I took um, April basically off. I, got, I took two weeks totally off. Um, cause I was so fried after the grand traverse and then got a week of training in and promptly got COVID. <laughs> so, um, I was starting man, like mid, mid May, I was, um, I was way on the back foot and, uh, pretty stressed about that, but I tried not to, um, stress it too much. And, um, yeah, I just, uh, started building back up and, you know, Leadville, like as, as hard and epic of a race as it is, and in some ways it's not the most, um, it doesn't require all that much specificity from a fitness point of view. I mean, I, I don't get nearly as fancy with my, you know, my intervals or my polarization and stuff as I will like this fall, for example, leading into the winter, um, where I have to be just sharper and faster at these really high intensity efforts. I mean, Leadville is at the end of the day, who can hold sort of like tempo sweet spot forever at, um, super high altitudes. I mean, I live at 8,000 feet and Leadville to me still feels like breathing through a straw. <laughs> and, right. 
And so I, you know, my mentality was a little bit different. I, um, I didn't focus so much on, on, um, yeah, getting like just super sharp and just, um, I spent basically, yeah, the last half of May, all of June, just building as big an engine as possible. And then I took a, I took a week off over 4th of July, went back East with the family. And then I came back out here and had, um, had five weeks to just like buckle down and, and kind of, that was when I sort of dropped for that five weeks. I, I did sort of drop a lot of this, you know, specific like running and strength stuff to focus sort of one full block just on Leadville. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't that stressful. I mean, you know, I, uh, I kind of like the way my training goes anyways, I, I do tend to save a lot of like the, like I was saying, like the VO2 max efforts for like the fall and the winter anyways. And so my training was, was quite sort of meat and potatoes, like, sweet spot in threshold work and a lot of volume and um didn't you know it didn't almost even matter for me like how specific it was past that um i just had a kind of some targets in my head sort of like hours hours a week i wanted to hit and i mean i don't even have i'm not one of those guys that ride by miles because yeah living out here and and with schema like i'm very much just a time focused sort of whether it's an interval or a ride I, i don't even have distance i don't think i'm like bike computer now that i say that <laughs> i did turn on distance for leadville though because i i didn't know needed to know where all the feed zones were and ironically even though i live over the pass i didn't go and i did not check out one foot of that course which was wow. maybe not brilliant um but i just sort of um i don't know i got into a good groove over here and was just knocking out big weeks and feeling good and didn't really want to disrupt that too much and um I do think I almost overcooked it a little bit and in hindsight saving grace was uh, I ended up jumping into the snowmass 50 mile race the weekend before, which was not on the plan at all. And um, I was not planning on doing that, but the Monday before that race, so we're talking two weeks before Leadville, I was, I was supposed to do another, like my last big week, but, um, but a friend of mine texted me that uh, like, Hey, are you doing this race on Saturday? It wasn't even, I just, I totally, totally wasn't even on my radar, um, which is pretty bad that I, cause I live here. Uh, it should have been, um, but it was actually, it was a good excuse. I was like, you know what? I'm feeling pretty tired. Uh, maybe this is a good excuse to rest up for, you know, four days <laughs> in the name of racing. And, uh, at the time it didn't feel great, but I think in hindsight, it was probably the right call. Cause I may have, you know, if I had done that one extra 25 or 30 hour a week, I, I probably would have been a little too cooked going into Leadville. Yeah. And as a result, you know, this race, uh, this tune-up race was it's polar opposite of Leadville. It was, um, it was basically just me and Simi Hamilton just destroying each other on, um, I think it's 95% single track. Um, and just, so, you know, the exact opposite, just super punchy up, down, um, on, off all day. And, uh, and very technical, but at the same time, I think that was pretty beneficial just to sort of like sharpen the mental skills for racing at speed at Leadville. I mean, Leadville is not a technical race why it's just the imagination, but it's, it's technically challenging in that you are, you know, navigating these, these like dirt roads at super high speeds in a pack. Um, and everyone, especially that first, uh, you know, sort of hour and a half to get to pipeline, um, everyone is so hyped up and excited and thinks they have a shot at winning and probably took like six caffeine gels that's that morning and people are taking some crazy risks and um 
it, it was a little nerve wracking for sure. But I think uh, having tried to follow Simi um, downhill for, you know, four and a half hours the previous weekend, I made me feel a lot more comfortable <laughs> um, when it came down to Leadville for sure. Um, you mentioned 25 to 30 hour weeks, you know, is that your typical, like when we think about periodization, I, you, I assume you're prioritizing the skiing over the mountain biking in terms of like your absolute peak for the year. When does that, when does that come? How do you manage? I mean, you effectively peaked for Leadville, but maybe not to the ultimate peak that you could have been. And when, when is your like ski peak kind of, uh, time frame? You know, I, I don't, uh, I should probably start by saying my training could certainly be more periodized. Like it, it's not to the level of say, you know, us like cross country skiers who do 30 hours all summer long. And then, you know, for, for three months, they're doing like 10 to 15 hours. You know, my training is pretty high volume all the time. Um, until, until Killing Jornet. did you see what Killian Jornet just came out with? I, you know, I did, I haven't gotten to, digest all of that but i i did kind of glance over it and and kind of a little bit yeah i mean you know i will say his training actually i think is a bit more periodized than it used to be but he was pretty infamous for a long time of like he would show up to world cups in schema with 20 hours already in his legs by friday and still win like i think as he's gotten older and everyone else has gotten faster as well he's had to be a little smarter <laughs> which is cool to see him sort of adapt to that but no, I mean, not to the level of Killian. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, I will say, yeah, I mean, I do, um, again, like I sort of, I basically average about a thousand hours a year annually. And um, when you break that out into, you know, race weeks, and if you're racing like 10 weekends in the winter or something, um, you know, and you're trying to sort of taper and be fast for those, like you've really got to keep the volume pretty high almost all the rest of the time. And then if you factor in, you know, a two week off season and maybe a couple of weeks of sickness over the years somewhere, and I've got three toddlers, so that's always fun. Um, and so, yeah, you know, like just to stay on top of the, and I, I do think I respond really well to volume. Um, and, and to stay on top of that, I, I consistently shoot for pretty big weeks. Um, that is that said, it, it's certainly not all the same. I mean, I do tend to work on some level of a three to one schedule most of the time. And so that could be three weeks on one week recovery. A lot of times I break it down into smaller chunks. Like I like these, sometimes I'll take like a three week chunk and break that down into a three to one. And just cause I, I feel like, especially as winter approaches, I can just do like higher quality, um, and I also get like a full week of recovery just drives me nuts. Like I'd, I'd always feel like, 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 like crap, frankly, if I take a full week, like just chilling out. And so, um, I do, do train pretty high volumes. Um, you know, I like certainly in my build weeks, I like them to be, um, like 25 hours. Um, you know, I rarely, rarely ever go over 30 hours to be honest, but I do a lot of 25 hours. Um, but then by the same token, anything under 20 and I kind of feel like I'm shortchanging myself unless I have a race, you know, the next week yeah. or something, which is bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, I think, you know, maybe I'll blame you a little bit. Like training peaks makes it too easy to, to track my metrics. And, um, and I, I think I'm getting better at not being as obsessed with like chasing the numbers, but at the same time, um, I have noticed, you know, um, sort of actually, I guess like that year, of the pandemic or kind of the year leading up 
to the pandemic, I should say, starting kind of six months before. That was like the first year I really broke that like thousand hours a year mark. And I know that's sort of just, that's not a true, it, it's not really, it, it's not real in the sense that you don't need to hit that, but it is real in the sense that if you look across and my coach, Adam, uh, he's, you know, we're always sending each other like studies back and forth. Right. And when you look Adam, across. Your coach is Adam St. Pierre. Is that right? Yeah, Adam St. Pierre. Um, but when you're looking at you know, the broader spectrum of endurance sports, and in particular, like cycling, rowing, cross country, skiing, uh, these sports that don't have the impact and, and sort of trauma of, of running, and you take that out, like that thousand hours is sort of like the barrier to entry to the elite level to medals at like world champs, Olympics, whatever it is. And, and I will say the, the more I focused on just increasing that annual volume, um, the more it's worked. I mean, I've only gotten faster and I'm 35 and I should be, you know, getting slower. And yet I, I didn't, you know, I couldn't break 40 minutes in Ajax until I broke that mark. And, um, I couldn't break 615 at Leadville until I had a couple of years of that volume underneath my belt. And I do think there's something to it where, uh, even if the race is, or on the shorter side, especially in schemo. Um, and yeah, you want to be really fresh and sharp for those events for sure. And I'll do pretty heavy tapers into those uh, to be, to be sure. Um, but I, I do think having that, that big volume has really helped from a consistency point of view, you know, you can come back from a little illness or injury or, or what have you and, um, and just bounce back quicker. And, you know, even if you're at 95% that day, you can still win a race uh, hopefully or do or do well um just because you have such depth there and uh i don't know i don't know the physiology behind it all admittedly but i think at least in my head i attribute some of that to like living at pretty high altitude um you know like eight thousand feet yeah i i i feel at least for me personally i can only do so much truly high intensity in a week yeah. um and recover from it um at this this altitude, whereas I can do a ton of volume and still recover from it, and so for me, that's just the formula that seems to work the best. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me again of what Killian just posted about his training. He did like I don't know three speed workouts and maybe eight threshold workouts, and he goes and sets the record at UTMB, Hard Rock. You know, he's another he's an alien. Yeah, he's something <laughs> fundamental there as well. Well, I mean, I can't speak to that. I mean, Killian is the goat and uh, he's someone I've looked up to for, for a decade now. And I think everyone across almost all of sport just um, realizes he's on something of a different level than the rest of us. Um, I, I will say, like, don't don't take it the wrong way. Like, I, I do um, a lot of structured training. I mean, I do, I do. Basically, I do, I you know, almost all year I'm doing two intensity sessions um, a week. Um, it's very rare that I'll do like a high volume week without any intensity in it. Um, you know, I've tried to get a little more flexible threshold workouts. Yeah. You know, I, um, I mean, Adam and I definitely play around with it a bit and certainly kind of like I touched on in in the fall leading into the schema season, we'll get a little fancier, as I say. Um, and we've done some stuff with like, like kind of block periodization and sort of these just ultra intense blocks. Um, which are miserable, but it seemed to work if I don't get sick. Um, but uh, but no, I mean, for the spring and summer and, and sort of the general kind of prep weeks, um, I just tend to follow um, sort of like a Wednesday, Saturday or a Tuesday, Friday, you know, whatever it is, just um, 
And I, and I've mixed it up. Like sometimes we'll we'll focus yeah on just like just threshold for this three week session or just you know VO two. But but I still like for like for Lightwell for example, um, I I just kept it really simple and I was doing midweek threshold workouts and weekend sweet spot workouts um, and just increasing the volume of you know time at intensity sort of week over week until I was up to you know, basically like two and a half hours of sweet spot in a six hour ride. <laughs> and when I knew I could do that, I was like, okay, I'm feeling pretty good for, for Leadville. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it worked. Cause again, Leadville is a bit different. I mean, Leadville really doesn't require, it requires a big motor and um, smart pacing or as smart as you can be to make those front groups, which is not always that smart. Um, but, uh, and, and really good, you know, sort of like hydration and, and nutrition. It doesn't require the same punch that like an XCO mountain bike race would, or the same level of like threshold that a schema race would, which is just, you know, maintaining 99% of your threshold for an hour and a half. I mean, schema is different. Schema is honestly, I, I've never been in as much pain in my life as a schema World Cup. And so to me, almost any other sporting event, and they're all as hard, like that's sort of people ask you what's harder. And whatever you just finished is, is hardest is sort of what I say, right? Cause, yeah. cause if you really are a racer and you give it your all and you cross that finish line and you can't stand up half the time, I mean, but I will say that there is something about that individual effort, especially in Europe against euros at that lower elevation. Um, there is literally no rest. I mean, like on a, even in the XCO where you're punching well above threshold on the climbs, like you're, you're recovering for a few seconds at a time on descents, but in schema world cups on technical descents, like all of my max heart rates and schemas have been in world cup descents, not on climbs. Wow. Um, where like, yeah, surprising. it's just so full on and it just goes, it just goes from like your, you know, your legs are, your lungs are screaming on the way up, but then on the way down, like the acid in your legs is just, Right. You can't even see straight. And uh, it's totally different racing in the U.S. where there's a lot of groomers connecting different sections of descents and whatnot. And so it becomes a bit more like a mountain bike race in that regard. But, um, yeah, it's all it's all relative. And so I just it sort of switch up, like, my focus. And I, I definitely am a little old school in that, like, in the summer. I basically focus on sweet spot and threshold work more. And then in the fall leading into the winter, I focus a bit more on threshold and VO2. And, uh, yeah, it's – it's kind of old school, but it works pretty well for me. I do switch it up occasionally with, like I said, sort of block periodization, but that's not always the most sustainable for me where I'll get really fast, but then, yeah, like I'll just blow up or get sick or um, overdo it. <laughs> and, um, and so it sort of depends if I do have a big, big race, like a world championships, then, then it's a whole different discussion for the, the month before that. But, um, for general sort of 10 month out of the year fitness. It's, it's pretty meat and potatoes. And are you, and you mentioned strength work, right? You plug in some strength work and what time, what, what time of the year do you add that in? Or is it year I round? do a, a bit of strength almost all year round. Um, although I tend not to do much on, on race weeks. Um, I do tend to, and again, I don't, you know, it's sort of relative, right? Like I think compared to a lot of athletes, I do very little strength work, but compared to, endurance athletes especially cyclists a lot of whom do zero i do a ton of strength work right um but a lot of that goes back to um sort of learning how to ride as much as possible and run as little as possible in the summer <laughs> and yet be able to handle that transition to skiing in the fall 
which if you really only, if you truly just ride a bike all, all summer and then try to jump into schema specific training in the fall, um, you will be absolutely crushed and your training will suffer as a result. You just won't be able to do the volume, the vert or the intensity um, because your legs will just, they won't be adapted to that eccentric loading from the descents whatsoever. And um, you're just going to be walking around like a, you know, octogenarian for, for so that's what months. I have to look forward to. Right now, <laughs> um, I haven't done barely any strength and zero running. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like I've figured out pretty well the last few years, kind of how little I can get away with. <laughs> and so I do still run like every week during the summer usually, but it, it's, it's pretty short, like just a couple, like half hour sessions, especially this summer when I was leading into Leadville. Um, and the, and then, um, you know, it doesn't take a lot of strength if you're doing the right strength work to uh, to kind of keep some of that adaptation in your legs so that when you do need to jump back into more like hiking and running um, and roller skiing and, and that sort of stuff, you're, you're kind of in a better, I mean, it's still going to be a rough uh, adaptation for maybe a week or two, but it doesn't, you know, instead of a week or two, or sorry, it's, it's a week or two instead of a month or two where it used to be that much. Um, yeah. And that's not really very helpful where like you kind of then only get to the point where you, you know, it's, it's November and you finally feel like your legs are able to run down, you know, like 2000 meters of mountains and that doesn't work so well if you're trying to get fast. Um, yeah. So I've been a fan of that. Um, I mean, not a fan. I mean, honestly, I don't, I don't like strength work very much, but again, kind of going back to that back injury I had, you know, in 2011, um, I've always had to do a, quite a, a fair bit of core work um, to kind of keep that stable uh, and stay on top of that. And so adding in, you know, a bit more leg strength was sort of just a, a pretty natural progression from that. Um, and yeah, I, uh, like I said, I do tend to not do it on race week. Um, that might just be in my head, but you know, when I, I, I do tend to taper, you know, I train a lot, but then I also taper quite hard <laughs> for the week of the race. And maybe that's because I'm a little overtrained a lot of the time. And I just feel like I really need to catch up on some of the rest quickly. But, um, along with that is sort of like, yeah, giving the muscles, um, some time to relax and recover. Um, I don't know. I, I see guys like Nino posting stuff about him doing like just these massive, like squat workouts and stuff like the week of a world cup. I'm just like, Whoa. Uh, but that's a sort of, it's almost like a different sport when you talk about guys who are punching like 500 Watts for two minutes, you know, for a, for an hour and a half, uh, that's a very different than just grinding it out at Leadville uh, yeah. at, at 10,000 feet. <laughs> what's your, what's like a, a couple key exercises in the, in your strength routine? Um, I mean, for, for, I mean, for core stuff, I, I just kind of live and die by planks and all the plank variations and planks are kind of fun. Cause you can, there are a million ways to do them to make them harder, easier. Um, and work on other sort of uh, muscle groups and, and sort of coordination and balance stuff along with that. So lots of plank variations um, in there. And then on the um, on the leg side of things, I, I definitely focus on single leg stuff. I do almost no double leg strength exercises, honestly, um, because again, I, I don't like doing strength work. And so I do try to keep it as specific and focused as possible. So it can, I can get the sort of best bang for a buck and then get back outside to do something more fun. <laughs> um, and so I do a lot of like sort of single leg squats and single leg box jumps and, and like um, eccentric loading stuff. Um, so kind of like 
versions of jumping lunges with with and without weight and from different sort of positions to kind of load that that landing phase which is the one that kills you as you know when you start running downhill or something let alone skiing downhill um, with your uh, and so yeah i've got a few um and they don't have to be long i mean i, I probably spend you know, it, between an hour to two hours in the gym a week out of, you know, and if your training is 20 to 30 hours a week, it, it sort of never adds up to, I mean, maybe 5% of my training time total. Um, but a little goes a long way. Yeah. And then, uh, I could spend a lot more time outside having fun. Um, <laughs> well, now you have a family, you have their day job, strafe clothing, and you said you had some kids. Do you do double days? How do you, how do you work all these hours in to the work I do, it's a, schedule? It's a busy one for sure. Sometimes, and I, I think certain times of the year I handle it better than others. <laughs> um, but I mean, I have a very patient and loving wife for one who is great at um, giving me the flexibility to to kind of bank the hours I need. Um, but yeah, I've got I've got three kids: um, five year old, a three year old, and a one year old. And um, but they're great, honestly, like more than anything, I think you hear a lot from a lot of other parents is that it just focuses them a bit more. And uh, I mean, I never got really, really fast in my opinion until I had kids. And a part of that was a few different things. I mean, one, again, I started in endurance sports quite late. So I just didn't even have the knowledge, let alone fitness foundation to, to train at the level I needed to. And so sort of it all built up to that that first year that i had will who's now five um was sort of the first year that i was super focused in training at like what i would call like a pro level um for a variety of reasons but then when you do have kids yeah you you, you don't have the same amount of time to waste especially if you've got a second job you know at strafe um and so i just don't waste a lot of time like i don't um, and, and I could, you know, for better or worse, right? Like I, I almost, I probably train alone 99% of the time. Um, and that's not always great, especially in the winter when you're talking about, you know, sort of backcountry conditions and whatnot. Um, and uh, it can be a little, a little boring sometimes too, when you're alone all the time, but just with, with kids and stuff, you have to, you have to be a little flexible and um, you don't have the same luxury of just sort of meeting up with friends whenever it fits into their schedule or, or whatnot and so you just have to find that window and, and make it happen and not procrastinate too much um when it comes time to get the work done um and uh i think it also helps a lot i mean like with like sleep hygiene and just general sort of like life routines i mean obviously having kids instills that pretty quickly and um and i think that goes a long way too to just forming habits to get up every day and you know, start doing the work. Like and that work could be strafe, it could be kids, or it could be training, right? And but either way, you got to be like, uh, sort of on it from when you wake up and or when the kid wakes you up, <laughs> you know, get them off to school or whatever, and then it's like go time. Um, so no, it's good. It's honestly like, like I said, I think I actually, you know, aside from, you know, bringing home the random, you know, pre-K illness every other week it seems like um and, and dealing with that i would say that overall having kids has actually made me a, a better athlete for sure and i also think it kind of reframes the picture a bit too i mean when you're suffering out there and you think you're suffering <laughs> but then it, it gives you a bit more other than just yourself to think about like if you're going to go out and train for five hours a day 
you want to make it count and you want to get the most out of it because it's time that you're giving up, uh, you know, that you could be spending with your wife, with your kids or at work. And you really want to feel like you're sacrificing for something worthwhile. And I think that's gone a long way too, to just making sure that I do, you know, I don't just go up for a five hour ride and soft pedal just to see the hours tick by. Like I'm not, I'm not out there just to like tick a box, I'm not there to like get the best out of myself and improve. And the only way to do that is to be accountable to, to yourself. Um, and if you, if you're, if you're faking it to yourself, like what's going to happen when you line up against, yeah, like at Leadville, like, I don't know, 30 pros, <laughs> like you're not going to, not going to go so well. So I think having kids has definitely helped. Um, yeah. Just sort of make it all, um, there's just a bit more on the line, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what is the future of ski mountaineering racing in the United States? We know it's much bigger in Europe. They have thousands of people on the start line in some of these races, P, you know, PDG, Piera, Menta. What, you know, what, what, what could you hope for in your lifetime with Schemo in the United States? If you'd asked me that question six months ago, um, I would have been a bit more optimistic right now. Um, I'm a little jaded by the recent uh, Olympic decision to remove the individual event from from the 2026 docket in favor of just keeping the sprint. And that, in my opinion, is going to really hurt the growth of, of Schemo in this country, unfortunately. I think we were right on the precipice of, um, you know, like you said, I mean, you, you race even more than I do um, in the States. It seems like you go to every cosmic race around and and it's awesome. I mean, the participation numbers have been going up and up every year, and I think they still will at a recreational level. But, um, you know, there are a few good junior development programs in the pipeline, especially the one out in Utah um, and Joe's and, and Breck as well. But um, I think those <laughs> – I, I don't know a lot of athletes who um, are viewing this most recent decision to remove individual event from the Olympics um, in a positive light. I don't know anyone, frankly, in the sport of Schemo who got into it to be a sprint racer. Um, Schemo is – by definition, an extremely aerobic event. Um, and almost everyone who comes to it comes from a cycling or a trail running or a backcountry skiing or cross-country skiing background. And um, to to make it an Olympic sport, but your event is three to three and a half minutes long, um, it really has very little to do with the actual sport of schema. Yeah, and um, and uh, I, it's a spectacle, exactly. I mean, I compare it to... It's exactly like the cross-country eliminator race in mountain biking they had, it. you know, they tried a few years back or a decade now. Um, and it was a total joke. I mean, it was it was easy to put on. They could do it in city centers. Um, it was popular to watch and drink beers at, but as, as an actual form of mountain biking, it had absolutely nothing to do with, with the sport. And um, the athletes hated it so much. And the, the organizing bodies, the individual um, athletic associations of the countries all you know, it was very much viewed as a second light, second tier light, and and they promptly got rid of it. Um, and that's exactly what sprint is to schema to me and to many other athletes. Um, it's great that it's in the Olympics, maybe, but I think most people I've talked to agree that it would have been far better off to just cut all of schema from the Olympics and wait a full additional cycle than to kind of introduce our sport on the world stage with this event in particular. Um, and I just don't see a lot of youth in particular, you know, 
young, fast kids who could be going towards cycling. Um, I don't see them putting their energies towards towards developing as schema athletes if that's the only event they have to look forward to from a, a career development and, and longevity point of view. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, again, so I, I think schema, you know, sadly, I think we're going to be in a state of sort of just status quo for at least four years. Um, or, you know, until they announced and hopefully in 2030, they announced that the individual race gets put back into the Olympics. And I think that will restart the discussion of, of, you know, developing pipelines to get fast kids into the sport the way they do in Europe towards those individual events. Um, but I think until that sport is in the Olympics, you're only going to have so much youth development because there's no money in this sport. It's not like, I mean, there's not a lot of money in mountain biking, but there's much less money in, in schema. And so there is no career path other than, you know, I mean, racing world cups is just as just it's the actual racing is just as competitive as an Olympic event to be sure. But because we don't have a well-funded national body, um, there's no career opportunity to, you know, I can't, I can't be a, you know, I can't race for the U S schema team as my only source of income, the way you can, if you're in France, Italy, Germany, Switzerland, um, Austria, what have you. And so until, and, and, and the U S Federation, they're not going to get that funding until that individual event is in the Olympics. So it's sort of a, a chicken and the egg type of thing. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I think, I think it's still great that on the grassroots level, like these races are, are popular. You've seen it. I mean, they're, they're as popular as ever, right. Especially almost since the pandemic, they've just exploded. And now it is super cool to show up and race, with, you know, 100 to 200 people at these individual events or something like Power 4 or Grand Traverse or many times that for the team events. Um, and that's great, but I think at the tip of the spear, you're not going to see, um, I don't know, I, I worry that you're not going to see like the development of the elite athletes the way that we would have if they had kept that in the Olympic program. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You know, I mean, the only thing that keeps me really excited is the the growth of the actual entrant numbers, you know, at these races. I mean, we have It's huge. We've had Wednesday night races, you know, up at a local area, you know, Eldora, and we get over 100 people, you know, on Wednesday night, you know, racing at night. Um, I think more resorts are allowing uphill skinning in resort, so that brings more organic growth. So hopefully we can kind of continue that trend. And hopefully one day we get cross country individual, you know, in the Olympics and to help with the pointy end, you know, and the athlete. As a, yeah, absolutely. And as a, as a sport, as a participation sport, it's grown exponentially. And I, I see that continuing to, to occur. I mean, in Aspen, I, I think we probably have more people going uphill across the four resorts than any other, um, yeah. any other resort in the country, frankly. And it's just every year it's more and more. And I mean, they have like, tickers to count these things it can be hundreds per day sometimes that's great um which is super cool and you know you see that in the sales of hard goods um like the the schema and the lightweight skis bindings boots uh and even in strafe with like our our recon line and kind of our lightweight gear um to go along with that like people are just craving it and that's that's awesome but i think so so i think at like the recreationally fast level like you're going to see more events and really good participation numbers but i just it's like the actual um, racer development part that I think we are still not nearly as far ahead as we should be. I mean, I started my first year on the U S team was 2013 world championships. Yeah. And 
you know, we still don't have a, uh, you know, I mean, we, we, we definitely have a more organized system now than we do. We have monthly zoom calls and stuff and Strava training groups and all that, but, uh, it's still a pretty lax affair compared to any other, um, sort of professional or elite level endurance sport. And when you look at sort of the, the resources that the Italians have, I mean, <laughs> that, that, you know, they're taking these kids from the age of, you know, 10 and putting them into these development programs and pipelines. And, uh, you can't make up for that. Like you yeah. just can't, you can't, I don't think you, you can't really take a, a B team cross country, like, I mean, really fit kids from other, um, you know, endurance sports who just didn't make the Olympic cut in that sport. You know, I, I think schema was too specific now at that high level to, to be able to take those kids at that older age and, and, and sort of remold them. I think you can to some degree, but when you actually look at like the top, top guys in Europe, like they've been doing this as their sole focus for decades and, it shows, you know, and I, that is my concern from, yeah. Yeah. From the competitive point of view, at least. Well, awesome. Hey, congrats on such a great season. You got a, I don't know, first races, probably November coming up on, on, on the snow. So uh, I'll see you out there and can't wait to uh, get to threshold red line headed uphill at 10,000 feet somewhere. <laughs> oh man, I know it's a whole different kind of suffering, but it'll be fun. And uh, yeah, I haven't seen the US calendar yet, but I'm sure I'll see you at quite a few races here um, before heading over to Europe. And uh, thanks again for having me on, on the show. It was great getting insights into managing different sports and killing it in both. So thank you so much, John. It was a uh, big pleasure. All right, thanks, Dirk.